Many will quit before they even give it a shot. They self-assess and never see what they are truly capable of. The cadre broke them, weeded them out. That's what it's all about, weeding out the weak as quickly and efficiently as possible. Your mind will be your greatest enemy. It's weak. It will lie to you. It will tell you to quit. It will tell you your body can't go on. Your mind will always quit before your body will. Recognize that lie quickly when it begins to creep in. All the fuck-fuck games, all the bullshit they put you through, it's simply to see you break, to get you to quit as quickly as possible. Not because they think it's funny, but because they don't have time to train weak-minded individuals. They want the elite, the elite mindsets. It's not the biggest and the strongest that make it and become special forces. It's the guys that never quit, the guys that are resilient, have the heart of a lion and will die before they give up. No matter what they put you through, no matter how badly it hurts, keep going. Keep getting back up. If you haven't figured out your why yet, you better soon. Not why you want to make it. You need to know why you don't want to fail. I believe the drivers that keep you from failing are far greater than the drivers that make you want to succeed. Failure can be an extremely powerful motivator. Welcome to episode eight of The Glorious Professionals brought to you by GoRuck Media. Our guest on the show today is Brent Cooper. And I just read his response to a friend, nice to be Brent's friend, on, on how to pass special forces assessment and selection on what it takes. He's a good friend, former Green Beret, and currently serves as executive director of the Green Beret Foundation. We're thrilled to share his story today. Brent, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. Jason Rich, pleased to be here, man. Excited for this conversation. You you don't actually just spew fire like like that kind of advice all the time. <laughs> no, no. Uh, well, no, not really. But you know, at a core, what you just read was it was it was it was something personal that I wrote to a family friend two years ago, actually, that was going through wanted to become special forces, and he was looking for advice. And I'm like, look, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. You know these these are the things and kind of the, the attributes that are going to be required in order to make it. So that's kind of a, an excerpt from a longer letter that I had written uh, to him while he was still in basic training. So we've both served at, at the Green Bay Foundation. I'm, I'm on the board. You're the executive director. You know, we meet up for this meeting or that meeting. We've shared stories on the phones a lot. I, I really want to start with just your, your upbringing and what what the through lines in your life were to get you to where you became a Green Beret, to, to, to where then you're the Green Beret, the guys are writing to say, hey, you know, how do I do this? Or what is this like, right? I mean, that's, that's what the goal of getting older is, is that you can start to mentor people, which is a huge deal with Rich. And so let's talk about where'd you grow up? Tell us some of your, your youth. Yeah, let's... Uh... This, this might be a little tough diving into my past a little bit. Not used to it, but I appreciate you asking. Uh, you know, I was born and raised in Denver, Colorado. Mile High City, loved it there. Mother was from Bogota, Colombia, actually. Grew up extremely poor, didn't move to the United States until she was 11, 12, 13. She's not even quite sure exactly what age in there. Father, totally English, grew up on the Outer Banks in North Carolina. And back in the late 60s, early, early 70s, he just said he always wanted to try, uh, explore the West, got on a Greyhound bus 
and went to Denver, got off with 20 bucks in his pocket. That's kind of how my parents met. You know, growing up, my parents divorced when I was six years old. And my mother, having no other skill sets except cleaning houses, that's how she ended up making a living, was cleaning homes. Did her own little business, had her own clients. And I would go with her along with my older siblings and clean homes. I would say at that age from six years old is when I just started establishing this kind of inherent work ethic. Like you just work. That's what you did. That's all I knew. And at six years old, I was the guy that was cleaning baseboards. Uh, she would give me a wet rag and say, get on my hands and knees and clean baseboards. And then as I got older, you know, I would get promoted to sweeping the floor and cleaning a bathroom. And that's when you knew you made it. That's when you knew, hey, I know how to clean a house, but I can clean a master bathroom from top to bottom uh, meticulously. But I think she always instilled this work ethic in me. And, and along with my father as well, you know, although they were divorced, they were extremely amicable. It was kind of an odd dynamic. I never remember my parents married. I never remember them holding hands, kissing, any of that stuff. But anytime we would want to do something, my mother would still say something along the lines of, if it was important, you have to ask your father. To which I would reply, he's not even living here. Like, why, why do I have to ask my dad? <laughs> was that a cultural thing? I think it might have been. You know, that I never really thought of it that way, but they still maintained, I guess, that dynamic of, of parenting where, you know, kind of the, the patriarch was the father, you know, that father figure. So your dad was in, in town still? My dad always remained in town. You know, I always asked him when I got old, as I've been older, I said, why didn't you ever move away, pursue something? And he said, I always wanted to stay close to you kids. So, you know, we still grew up with a, a good relationship with my father, but it was really that upbringing with my mother, you know, and cleaning homes and just kind of, you know, I was a kid on, on had free lunches at school, you know, and it was kind of embarrassing because I remember going through the line, the cafeteria line at elementary school. And you'd get up there and rather than give the person your money, you know, you say, hey, I'm on this list over here. And eventually they got to know you. But I, I remembered like hiding that fact or, or being ashamed that I was on free lunches. But, you know, I, I, I think it kind of built both a lot of positive motivators in me that I didn't really recognize till I was older and kind of a little chip on your shoulder of, you know, hey, I want to kind of do more, uh, you know, than my parents did. And I think they would a test. They always wanted more for us as well. So was that something that just sort of sustained? I mean, was that your setup? Were you, were you cleaning houses until when? How did the, how did the situation develop? You know, I started also playing soccer when I was six years old. A friend of mine invited me to come to his practice, fell in love with it. And I was always naturally athletic. I loved playing all sports. I kind of played a couple sports growing up and I always gravitated back to soccer. And I kind of bring that up because that was the constant in my life. And it still kind of is. And I think what I loved about it was the team sports mentality of it, the team aspect of it, that the, the sum of all 11 players on the field was significantly better than any one of us by ourselves. And that team mentality, I think, just it bode well for me as I grew up as a kid. But yet I was also, you know, the last one dropped off at practice, last one picked up. And it was just based on my mom's schedule, right? So um, I remember right around junior high, right before uh, I, I went into high school, you know, I was playing on a competitive team and I'd get benched all the time. 
I was getting benched and I couldn't figure out why. And, you know, maybe I should just quit. And so you were good though. Yeah, I, w- I was really good, but I was getting benched. And I talked to my coach and he said, you know, every time you get in the, in the game, you win the ball, but then you give it away, you know, and that was kind of the ra- the reasoning back then. And I just remember that the summer before my freshman year of high school, I'd go in my backyard and I'd practice three to four hours a day, every single day. I think I just had this intrinsic, these intrinsic motivators in me to always want to be better and always want to kind of achieve something uh, great. And I, I, you know, back then I didn't really know what it was, but um, I just always had that inherent nature to kind of a desire to do something great with my life. And I, I couldn't really figure out what it was. Are your parents coming to your games and stuff? Is there, what's your support structure look like? Was it the soccer team? I had a great support structure. You know, parents were there. My, my parents were there as much as possible. You know, I had a good support structure. You know, I, I don't want to paint this picture that it, it, it wasn't like that. I think what it was, was, you know, growing up, um, you know, on lentils and rice and baked potatoes. And you don't really recognize until you get older, why did I eat so much lentils, rice and potatoes? And it's like, well, you're an adult. It's like, wow, that's cheap stuff that feeds <laughs> a lot of people. There you go. And I'm like, that's why my mother always bought that stuff. How many siblings did you have? Uh, three siblings. And where are you in the, in the, the stack? I'm the youngest. <laughs> I always say, thank you, mom and dad for staying married long enough to have me. <laughs> You know, I just had this very competitive nature about me and I always, my outlet was sports. And then predominantly, I just always gravitated to soccer, you know, and even today, you know, guys would find out I play soccer and, you know, there, there's, you always get made fun of it because in America, soccer is not the most popular sport in the entire world it is. Um, but I think what I love so much about it, it's an extremely strategic game. And if you really understand about it, you know, you'll see that that what's taking place off the ball is where a lot of the action is happening. You know, a lot of people, they just don't understand soccer because they look, you know, it's like, oh, the ball's just getting kicked around. Nobody scores a goal. And so it's not any fun to watch. But it's a very strategic game similar to, to chess, which is another game I love. But yeah, I mean, so I, I grew up playing tennis, right? So talk about not, not a tough guy sport, so to say. Right, <laughs> right. And I and I I love tennis. I think I, I love any competitive sport, but I think, you know, soccer was always the constant in my life. And I had these dreams and aspirations of always playing professional soccer. But I think for me, it's like, well, if I'm not going to get a scholarship, I can't afford to go to college. And I didn't grow up in a military background. My grandfather, who I, on my father's side, who I barely knew, um, he was in the army. He was in the Korean War. I had an uncle on my mother's side that was, uh, ended up being in the army, but again, just didn't know much about it. So I wasn't raised in military environment. I wasn't raised on saying, Hey, this is even an option for you. But I think that actually worked to my benefit because it always intrigued me a little bit. It always intrigued me. The people that would just raise their hands and volunteer and go sacrifice their bubble, um, for something greater than themselves. But growing up again, all I wanted to do was just play soccer. And, and uh, getting to college, hey, trying to fulfill that lifelong goal and then maybe playing professionally one day. So how'd that work out? It didn't work out at all. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't work out at all. After high school, 
I ended up passing on some scholarships I had to play college ball to stay in town because of my high school girlfriend at the time. That's the truth. I, I think I use that excuse because it is somewhat valid, but I think when I really look at what I was thinking about back then, I was too scared to go away. I was too scared to leave my bubble. I was too scared to leave Denver. I was too scared to leave my single mother, you know, being the, being the youngest kid. And that's the truth. Uh, I think I was just too scared to leave, but, but I, but I suffered because of it then, because then I ended up going to the state college for a couple of years, flunked out because I never went to class. I didn't really want to be there. And for a while, I just thought, hey, school's not for me, man. So I just started and I got into the working force. I started working in corporate America. And that's how I, I started that route. You know, Brent, as I listen back to your story, what I'm, what I'm hearing a lot is you learned responsibility from your mother and your father. Even though he wasn't around all the time, he was still responsible for you. Your mother was directly responsible for you. And you started working with your mother and siblings as a team. To me, if you look back on your early, early life, this is anybody, not just you, but if you look back on your early life, that's where your base core values are formed. The ideas, the ideals, the things that you strive for, and that's that's what I'm hearing. And then that that transposed into the soccer team, which again became your team. I mean, we're building towards we know what kind of team. So yeah, yeah. So it, all of those things are formative. I couldn't agree more with that. You know, and my mother, she's this little five two tiny little Colombian, but by God, she is a spitfire. Ask any of my buddies; they feared her in a good way. Yeah. You know. And what you're saying, Richard, was, you know, she instilled so many things in my head, you know, bad company ruins good morals and maturity has nothing to do with age. It has everything to do with the acceptance of responsibility. Exactly. And yeah, yeah. Cause when I got to 18, I remember like, I'm 18, I can do whatever I want. She's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> maturity has nothing to do with age, except responsibility. And it's not just acceptance of responsibility for your bills. And oh, I, I have a mortgage and I pay my bills on time. I must be an adult. It's no, except it's a responsibility for your actions, for your decisions. Yeah. You know, are, are you going to take ownership of the good choices and the bad choices you make, regardless of the circumstance? Exactly. So you're failing out of college, not taking responsibility for, for grades. I right? failed out of college. I don't think I've ever admitted that to many people, but I got put on academic suspension from the state college in Denver. And I say that though, I just didn't go to class, right? Anybody can fail out. Oh, you, you did it the right way, Brent. <laughs> uh, yeah, I did it the right anybody way. Anybody can do it. <laughs> anybody can do it. I just didn't go to class. And I think it was, you know, at the time I was, I was missing playing soccer and I just didn't even try and walk onto the team there. And so I just started working and getting into the corporate lifestyle. Um, and then I think a, a good thing and a bad thing was I started making decent money. So what are you doing? Well, at the time I was doing, I was IT enterprise help desk support for Einstein Noah restaurant group, which does Einstein bagels. I think a lot of people probably heard of Einstein Noah bagels. They had a corporate office in Golden, Colorado. And I was the IT help desk person um, at the time, uh, you know, going around fixing computers. We had a lab, you know, I've been a nerd my whole life. I love computers, love technology. And I started making decent money, the type of job like 
I, I happened to get it because I had a buddy that was a systems engineer there and got m- worked my way in that way. But I started saying, wow, maybe I don't, I don't need college. Like I'm already making more money than my friends that are still in college. So of course, in my 21-year-old mind, 20-year-old mind, I'm thinking, why do I need to go to college? Um, and, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I eventually ended up going back to school and, and saw the value in that. But it was during that time when I was working at that job, I was in the lab, had a computer broken open, a hard drive in my hand, and the buddy comes busting in the lab with one of those old school black and white boob tubes, real small one. He plugs it in and we start watching the planes hit the Twin Towers. You know, everyone's got their 9-11 story. That's where I was when 9-11 happened. I was in a lab building a computer and I remember watching it and similar to probably what everybody thought, this has to be a joke, what's going on? And I would say my initial reaction, of course, was anger, but it was not, I need to go volunteer right now. It was in the back of my mind, but I think I thought there's other guys doing this right now. There's already guys in the military. Like, how am I going to stop what I'm doing and go join the military? Like, I guess in my head, I just couldn't figure out how to connect the dots there of how to go join. It was the identical thing for me. I mean, it was, I wanted to go do something, but where do you even start? Right. I mean, I I get it. It's real easy to, you know, someone out there would say, well, you walk into the recruiting station right? And you say, I want to serve. And it it really is that simple. At the same time, not coming from the background of military service. I mean, which service should I join? What job do I actually want? I mean, in your case, maybe, you know, should you be an IT guy in the army? I mean, everyone in the army is not a a warfighter or, you know, is not carrying guns into the front lines, right? So, it takes, it takes a, an enormous network of support. What should I do? And then you know, coming to terms with that is, is something that can take some time. Yeah, several years even, you know, but, but as you know, time, time's a pretty fickle thing and time just progressed. And I think that's what planted the seed though. Obviously for me, 9-11, I was always kind of intrigued with the military just from, from my grandfather serving, but no one ever actually saying, is this an option for you? Is this something you would like to do? I never had somebody like that in my life tell me that. So I kind of had to come to all these terms by myself and to the conclusions in my 20s of what is it I really want to do with my life? Because as time progressed, you know, you start making more money. And for me, the upbringing I had where I came from, uh, you know, free lunches in the cafeteria line, I thought money equaled success to me. Like if I could just make X amount of dollars, then I would be happy. And that's such an artificial reality, at least for me, because that dollar amount keeps getting pushed to the right. (laughs) And it got to a point where I eventually was like, uh, this isn't working out for me. Like I need to do something greater than just myself. And I I probably overuse that or use it very often about serving something greater than yourself. But it took the majority of my 20s to kind of figure that out. And, and I really didn't figure it out until, you know, I was 26 and I got married. That's a whole other story in itself. So what's the circumstances? Tell us, you know, long courtship, quick flash to bang. How, how did that? It actually was, I had just moved back from California. I had gotten out of a long-term relationship that I knew wouldn't progress uh, any further. 
And I had reconnected with somebody from high school, actually, an old high school friend. And we just hit it off. We had so much in common, or at least we thought we did. There was a lot of commonality, so much to talk about. Our networks meshed together to a certain bo- to, to a certain degree. And I, I think, Lou, and I look back now in retrospect, she was exactly opposite of what I had just gotten out of. And so I thought she was the right choice, right? Like, this is everything I've been looking for. It was a very short courtship. We're talking a couple months. And we were married for, for four years, but it wasn't until I was 30, it got to the point where then I was like thinking about this military thing the whole time. I really wanted to join. I started doing research. I was living in Bailey, Colorado at the time, which was elevation 8,000 feet. There's a lot of old crusty SF guys out there up in the hills. And I started talking to them and I'm like, this is, I think, something I can do. I think this is the career I want to have. And talked to my ex-wife about it at the time, or my wife at the time. And she says, you should do it. She's like, I absolutely think you should do it. But? <laughs> well, looking back, I think it was her way of just getting me out of the house. But I decided to do it. I, I signed an 18 x-ray contract. Also known as SF baby, also known as just, you know, you're coming straight off the street with guaranteed slots into the pipeline, not guaranteed outcomes. Exactly. Right. So if you fail any one of them, you, you're at the needs of the army and you will be in negative 50 degree weather in Alaska with a really heavy rucksack and it will be four in the morning and you'll be wishing you were a Green Beret. <laughs> exactly. It, that, that was a very good motivator to succeed. So I'm 30 years old and I signed the contract. I needed an age waiver to even uh, get the contract. You had to sign it prior to your 30th birthday. So I go to basic training at 30 with a bunch of 18 year olds. I'm older than the majority of my drill sergeants. And basic training was a very interesting time because for me, I had a mental edge, just I think being older, it was just very simple to do the right thing. You know, I learned what mass punishment was very quickly, paying for other people's mistakes, you know, and fast forward, you know, get through basic training, airborne school, and then you head off to North Carolina and I had my rucksack, all my bags were packed the night before we left for special forces assessment and selection. The night before selection, I'm in the asbestos ridden barracks at North Carolina. My wife at the time is still in Colorado. She calls me up. I'm saying goodbye. I'm going to selection the next day, hoping for words of encouragement. And she says, I want a divorce Mm. the night before I leave for selection. Guys, I, I remember hanging up the phone. I cried all night. Where were you? Were you in the barracks? Or were you in your car outside the barracks? Or I mean, I was in the barracks. This was at night. Okay. Bags were packed. The next morning, we're leaving for selection. Here, I, here I'm hoping she would say, good luck. Best of luck to you. You're going to make it. And she says, I want a divorce. I went to selection the next day. I was in a fog for 19 straight days at selection. And I think the reason I made it is because my mind was strong. Emotionally, I was a wreck. I barely remember a lot of the days, but I just kept thinking to myself, just get through this, just get through this, Um, it'll be over. Got back, I did get selected, Uh, obviously I got back, was excited to call my wife, thinking for some reason she would take me back, and instead three days after I got back, she served me papers. And I gotta tell you though, it was a huge sigh of relief. That's kind of the twist in the story there, because 
I had been married for four years, but I had so much pride at the time. I didn't want to quit. The, the, the mindset of SF guys of not quitting can work to our detriment in certain aspects of life. And I was in a marriage that I should have quit a long time ago. Um, and I don't know how that'll come across to some people that uh, believe marriage should be a, a lifelong commitment. And that's the way I was raised. I think I was raised on, hey, my parents were divorced. I'm never going to get divorced, you know, because that's failure. That's the way I viewed it at the time. I thought I was going to be sentenced to this choice of mine for eternity when the reality was I, I just didn't have the guts to make the decision and pull the trigger as far as to serve papers myself. Inertia sort of becomes you're in a relationship. It's really hard to get out of it mentally. I mean, you know, this is also army doctrine. You don't call it a retreat. You call it a break in contact because who wants to accept ret retreat implies failure, you know, all these things. And so you're, you're teaching people in their, in their brain, like the failure, especially to people in, in our community, it's just never okay. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I went through the same stuff. It was like, I don't care how bad this is. I will prove how much I can endure of this relationship and it'll eventually get better. Right. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the mentality. Like we, we are just built to endure anything that comes our way, good, bad, or otherwise. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it can be in certain aspects of life. Like we don't just have to keep getting pulverized for the sake of thinking we shouldn't quit. Yeah, Rich, I know you got thoughts on this. You're, Rich is sitting over there. Right. He's the master of, of this. <laughs> Let's hear what he has to say. Well, I always kind of looked at my marriages like magazines. Empty one, throw it away, get another one. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I know what you're talking about, and I've, I've been in the same place a, a couple of times myself. And it, it, it is true that because of the mindset that special forces soldiers have or special operations people have, not just soldiers, but special operations as a whole, they will endure things beyond what they should or where they should just so they don't fail. And that you have to be careful of that and you have to learn. And that's when it, that's when, again, goes back to mentorship. When you start talking to those around you and find out different points of view, different ideas and start form reforming yourself, reinventing yourself, if you will, in different ways. But you're absolutely correct. It can be a detriment at times and has been. I've seen it. Uh, I've lived it. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. And that's the truth. Cause, cause after I got selected and then my ex-wife files for divorce, I'm in North Carolina with, with just my army gear that I still have from basic training and airborne school. And Thinking, you know, my home's still in Colorado. But after my offer divorce, I never went back to Colorado again. It's like my life ended. My house was gone. My tools were gone. My clothes were gone. Everything was gone. Ended up having to file for bankruptcy. She took everything. But I think looking back, I just wanted to like get, be done with that. So I just made a lot of concessions that I probably didn't need to make. But it was just easier for me to rip the bandaid off. And I literally like started my life over, you know, at 31 years old now. And you're in the middle, you're in the middle of one of the hardest training pipelines on the planet. Just starting. Yeah. If I'm giving people advice on how to go through the, the Q course, it's make sure that you remove all of the things that you're describing almost to a T that you're going through. All of, all of the distractors. 
so that you can focus. Yeah, divorces and bankruptcies and all of that stuff, that's, that's not the ideal situation. It was bad, but, but in large part, <laughs> sorry, sorry to laugh, man, but you're laughing too. So it's like, well, it's all well, you can do. Yeah. I'm laughing now because, you know, life's all about perspective, right? If you can shift things, just one degree perspective and look at it differently, it's not as bad as you thought it was in the moment. And, and for me, looking back, I didn't have anything to go back to. And so, you know, when we kicked off this podcast with that letter, I wrote that, that, you know, the drivers that keep somebody from failing, I believe, can be far greater than the drivers that make somebody want to succeed. Because I did feel, I feared failure a lot. And a lot of people, there's all these things out there. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to fail. It's okay to fail. And I don't disagree with that. I think you can learn a lot through failure. But I ask people the question, because if your motivators are to succeed, those are completely different objectives that you have in your head or, or things you paint a picture of in your head than the pictures you paint of not wanting to fail. You know, a lot of people that want to succeed, it's because maybe they want a fancy car or they just want success in, in professional life. For me, I never thought about that stuff, really. It was, I don't want to go back to the life that I had. And that was a very powerful motivator enough for me to never quit. And I think that's the mentality I took going through the Special Forces Qualification course, you know, once I started it. So what was the hardest part of the course for you? Small unit tactics, SUT. Phase two. It was phase two for me. Any guy that goes through that course and says they didn't want to quit at least 100 times is a liar. <laughs> it, it, it always goes through your head. There were so many times I wanted to quit. And there, I almost broke once. I literally almost broke. There was one time we came back from the field, got an opportunity to use the pay phone, I remember. And I called my older brother, Brian. He's two and a half years older than me. I was the athletic one. He was the extremely artistic one. He's an independent film producer now. And I said, Brian, I can't do it anymore. I can't endure this anymore. I'm broken, man. He kind of chuckled himself. And he says, Brent, he says, no matter what they do to you, it doesn't matter what they do to you, how hard, how long they make you ruck for, how much weight they put on your back, how much they can control anything in your life right now. The sun will go down, the sun will go up again next tomorrow. They can't control time. And this will eventually end if you just keep going. And I don't know what it was, but it was that small piece of advice. Because you do, you get in this mindset where you're like, this is never going to end. I am going to die with this heavy ruck on my back or some other way. <laughs> you know, you just, you get in this mindset where you feel like you're in the Truman show, you're in this bubble and it's never going to end. You're just going to endure this for, for so long. And he kind of brought it back down to the reality. It's like sun goes up, sun goes down. Nobody can control time. They can control everything else in your life. They could even control the weather at times. I mean, somehow it's, it's 25 degrees there and it still rains. It, like do us the courtesy of just snowing. That would be better, you know? Yeah. But they just dial it down. It's 25 degrees and it's raining. I just, it's unbelievable. And that's why I was convinced I was in the Truman show at Sears school because a damn rooster would crow all the time. <laughs> but that, that was the most difficult time was SUT and I think just shifting or just changing my perspective, that one degree where it's like, I'm going to endure this. And there is a point on the calendar where this will end. Um, and, and I don't know if that seems a little too simplistic, but 
But that's what I needed to kind of recalibrate and refocus and re-engage myself uh, to keep going. And I, and I was fortunate. I made it through first time go everything. And I don't say that to gloat. I say that the only reason I did, I guarantee you, I don't think I could have endured stuff again. A lot of my buddies, I would have to get recycled and they, they would complete it. Holy cow. These guys were phenomenal. Cause so I'm like, I, I don't know if I could have done it again. <laughs> Let's talk about the transition. Cause we do get to some, some fifth special forces, the Legion stuff. I'll probably step out here while you guys, you know, do your bona fides and all of that type <laughs> of fun stuff. I always got to listen to Rich. Tell me about the Legion, the Legion, right? Yeah. So you, you finally earn your, your green beret. How was that moment? And, and how was it getting to, to fifth group? It was surreal. Earning the green beret was surreal. It's a culmination of not just the, you know, training in the Q course, but the culmination of just your life, right? So everything we just kind of talked about was a culmination of everything it took in my life to kind of get me to that point. And I remember I wanted to go to seventh group. I wanted to go down to Florida. I wanted warm weather. And because my language was Arabic, I didn't, I didn't know at the time way back in MEPS when I tested well on the fake language test that they, that they give you, that that would determine what language you had two years later uh, to, what, to what group you went to. But I got fifth group, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. Growing up in Denver, Colorado, I had no idea what Kentucky even looked like. And I got to be honest, it turned out to be the, the best uh, place for me. Ended up really loving it there. I get to, this is no joke. I get to, I get to group. I remember I'm sitting down as a newbie, right? And some guy comes in, he says, wait right here. He leaves, comes back 30 minutes later. He says, are you married? And I had gotten, I, I did get remarried, uh, to my wife. Now we've, we've been married eight plus years and he comes back in and says, are you married? I said, yeah, I'm married. He leaves again, comes back 45 minutes later and says, okay, follow me. Takes me to my team room. I walk in, right? There's about eight guys in there at the time. They just look at me like, who the hell are you? And he's like, here's your new team. I walk over to my team sergeant, uh, who's now the command sergeant major, first battalion at fifth group, and who's a one year older than me. My team's, I'm a new E5 on the team at 33 years old. And my team sergeant's one year older than me. And he says, what's your name? <laughs> I was like, Brent. And he goes, cool, get ready. You're going to go to ranger school next month. That was the first thing he said. And I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I can endure this. Long story short, didn't end up going to ranger school because we got deployed three months later. Uh, and command said, you know, he doesn't need to go to ranger school. He needs to be with the team right now. So where'd you go? What, what was the mission? Afghanistan, uh, northern Afghanistan, and had a great team of guys, man. They're actually still all in, so I'll kind of save any names, obviously, but still good friends with them all. We went to Afghanistan for nine months and I just worked my ass off. It was the type of team where our motto was don't ask to go home when we were in the team room because we just worked, worked, worked. We worked out, we worked out hard as well. I think, I think that's where my age benefited me or at least, hey, I'm just going to work hard because I, I recognize quickly you earn respect and it's not through anything I'm going to say, it's through my actions. And one of the best moments of my life now, next to being married to my wife now and the birth of my child was when my team sergeant pulled me aside about a month into deployment 
And he said, hey, the team and I collectively, we gathered up, we talked, we decided you've earned the right to call us by our first name now. <laughs> that That's awesome. And I get, I get tinglies every time I even say that because that literally was the top three moments of my entire life because I knew in that moment I earned their respect. So real quick, I have a very similar story. They gave me the team shirt. We went on this big, crazy mission. It was, you know, if you're a Green Beret, these are the things that you train for, right? Mm -hmm. And we got back and they gave me the team shirt. And, and it was, I, I can feel, and I just got goosebumps thinking about it. I can feel what it felt like to be there when Josh gave me that team shirt. It was this fist of God shirt, you know? I mean, it's just, it was, it was awesome. It's a great feeling. Yeah. So what, what did you do? I don't think I did anything specifically to earn that right. I think it was a collective sum of, of everything I was doing because we got in country and I was, a, I was a communication sergeant. Naturally, like I said, from you know, early in my 20s, I was the computer guy. I've always tinkered with electronics. And so when I, got to, when I got to SF's training, I wanted to be a combo guy. I was one of the few guys that actually wanted to be a combo guy. Loved all that stuff. So we got in the country and man, just working my ass off just having everything meticulously prepared for missions, everybody squared away on their combo stuff, cross-training guys. I think it was just them seeing how hard I was working and keeping my head down and doing what I had to do. For me, it was, it was pretty simple. You know, just do what you have to do. You're part of the team. Everybody has their part. And that's why, and, and that's where I kind of bring in for me you know, an ODA, an oper you know, an A team's comprised of 12 guys. Not all the teams have all 12, but, you know, soccer teams are comprised on the field of 11 starters. You know, everybody has their part and the collective sum of that is what makes you a phenomenal team. And I always kind of use that to look at an ODA similarly. But yeah, kind of long-winded to say that was one of the greatest moments of my life to be able to call those guys by their first name, except for chief and captain. They were still sir and chief. What, what was the deployment like back then? Like what, what you got to be a green beret on deployment in Afghanistan. I mean, that's, that's what I signed up after nine 11 to go, to go be and to go do. Right. Like, did you get to live that, live that out? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were going on a lot of missions. We were in Northern Afghanistan and our very first mission actually shit hit the fan. I was a combo guy. I'm driving in the lead vehicle. There's one Humvee in front of us, which was our partner force. And long story short, we're driving to a meeting. And on the way out, it was one way in, one way out. And I remember our Bravo, when on our way in, was like, man, this is not good. There's people eyeballing us. And on our way out, the lead vehicle, probably about 20, 30 meters in front of us. And all of a sudden, just boom. Fortunately, they detonated the IED a little too late, and the back end of the, the Humvee was just completely sunk in there. Everybody's on the radio screaming, blow through, blow through. We blow through, get to the other side. Everything's kind of frantic. And I remember thinking, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to recall everything you're trained on and the mission prep and the op, you know, the op order. And what ended up happening was once we collected that Humvee out, I thought we we're just going to leave. And it's like, hey, back to base. Let's get out of here. Instead, everyone's like, no, we're getting out. We're going to go pick a fight. And I remember thinking how cool that was because it's like, this wasn't the conventional army. We're not leaving. We're getting out right now. And we're going to go find these, these guys. And it was that moment there where I'm like, this is what I signed up for. 
right? I didn't sign up to back down. I signed up to serve something greater than myself. And this is what it took. At least that kicked off the deployment uh, for us during that time. And that was about, that was 2012. Yeah, I mean, that's one of those things where I'm not sure that you, you know, Ranger handbook doctrine is when, when you're assaulted, you, you counter assault, right? Right. When you're ambushed, counter assault. And that doesn't come necessarily intuitively. So, you know, you submit to your, to the team, to be a great teammate. First, you have to be a great individual. You go through training, you pass all this training, right? That's great. Then you get on the team and you're the new guy. I mean, as far as experience goes, you might just be one year younger and you, and you were mature and all that stuff, but they had the, they had the tribal knowledge of what to do in war. And that meant you're going to, you're going to assault now. Right. You don't just, cause if you don't, what happens? They're just going to hit you again. Yeah, absolutely. And, and on that team, I was one of the oldest ones on the team, but once you got there had no, age, age then has nothing to do with anything. Cause these guys on the team, they have been in the military for a lot longer than me. They had the experience, they had deployments under their belt. And so that's why it's like, I'm going to keep my head down and shut up because I don't know what the hell I'm talking about when I got to a team, you know, and these guys helped show me exactly what it took in order for us to survive. Because when you get to a team and that's why ODAs are so great, it's all about the guy to your left and to your right. That's all that matters, you know, and that is a form of serving something greater than yourself is simply I'm serving the guy to my left and right, because as long as I got them in, in mind and they they're first, you know, that's how we'll get home. That's how we'll achieve this mission or get home successfully. So let's take it up a little notch, right? And just say, what do, because we're going to start transitioning into Green Bray Foundation and your role, your role there representing our, our entire community in that role. I mean, what do special forces guys do, right? What, what, is, a, what is the classic mission, you know, how to, how to differentiate Green Berets from, from other members in the military? Well, as far as our mission, right, as far as the mission being much more unconventional warfare by, with, and through, you know, our partner forces, you know, I've always looked at special forces, and this is why it intrigued me when I joined, when I was doing research on joining, because I love their mission. I love the idea that we're much more warrior diplomat type mentality, where we're going into foreign areas and building rapport with the locals and helping them, you know, enabling them. To, to, to help overthrow the issues that are going on in their own community. So I think I love that mission. And I, and I believe that's primarily in large part, a big differentiator from SF to conventional army or, or other military branches. Yeah. I mean, you sort of talk about the, the warrior diplomat and, you know, rapport building and, and yet you also have to have that switch, right? Which you, you already talked about. And you said, Hey, we were there with our partner force. Well, that means you had your, your local Afghans, right. That were fighting, you were fighting by, with, and through them. I mean, you're, you're fighting with them, but you also have to know it's not always all about rapport building with all people and, and learning that, that switch, Rich, is it fair to say that's kind of tribal knowledge? I mean, eventually you get better at that, but the community shows you that too. That, that's what the team is all about. And that's what you learn from the team. I've always looked at a team as a jigsaw puzzle. And the question is, do you fit into that puzzle as an individual and thereby support the team even more so? And the team itself supports you. That's when the, the, the team accepts you and the team teaches you those kinds of things that you need to need, need to know. 
that tribal knowledge that has been taught to them by others. It's a continual mentorship. Every time a new person comes to the team, every time somebody on the team learns something new and comes back to the team, it's that, that teaching. I felt the same way that, that you did, Brent, when I looked at special forces and said, you know, yeah, I, I, I can shoot it, guys, but I'd much rather go in and work with an indigenous force, people indigenous to the area that we're going into, and help them find ways, better ways, to respond to the situations and the problems that they have within their area. And if I can do that, then I've done something positive as opposed to negative. I can do negative. I know how to do negative. Been done lots of negative. But if I can do positive, that's so much better. And it's more fulfilling to me as an individual to participate in something like that. And that's what brought me to the Green Berets. Yeah, that's a great point. So, I mean, you got what you asked for, right? You go join special forces. You want to be, you want to be there. I think special forces, you know, for me, the standard of excellence was critical. And I've always kind of lived my life with, with honestly, one standard. And, you know, I was always kind of a perfectionist growing up. You know, I'll admit I needed the same color and type of hangers in my closet. I used to need my shoelaces tied evenly. You know, I've kind of I've kind of grown away from that mostly to just help balance myself out. But I've always been very meticulous in the things I've done. And I think it stems from, you know, a lot of that upbringing with my mother. It's like, hey, make the right choices, even when nobody's looking. So let's talk about how life happens then, because I, I did notice that you have some fingernail polish on for all the listeners out there. Right. It's it's not matching matching their different colors i mean it's mostly just on your fingernails but talk to us about how life happens and and how do you all of a sudden you know we're having this this team room little discussion here about big badass green beret stuff and and you've got painted fingernails talk to us about that life man i have an almost four-year-old the easter bunny brought her about 20 tiny little different colors of nail polish and my wife, Shelly, and I were customers in her nail salon yesterday. <laughs> That's great. So let's, <laughs> it's the same stuff in our, our house. I mean, my, uh, my oldest cut my hair yesterday, you know, good times, deployment mindset stuff, control right. the things you can control. And actually it's the COVID-19 buzz cut challenge. So buzz your, buzz your hair, do 19 push-ups, and donate 19 bucks somewhere. So I like it. You'll you'll see a you'll see a check from from me, and hopefully we'll be able to get some other folks out there. Look, nineteen dollars isn't going to solve all the problems of the world, but sometimes it's just about the mindset of of serving at a time when there is a can be a tendency to just kind of take care of yourself, right? And we need to we need to branch out and think about others, and not not I mean, gosh, God bless the the first responders and stuff all up in New York City and and in you know. The places where this is really, really hot. There's also still a lot of other places out there, you know, doing doing God's work like Green Bray Foundation. Before we get to GBF, though, talk to us about you know getting out of of special forces and then applying some of those lessons in the in the civilian sector. Yeah, absolutely. You know, getting out in 2015, it was a, a rather difficult decision. 
because I, I had went into the military thinking that it possibly could have been uh, my next career. It was a family decision in 2015 getting out. And I think it came down to really, I was 35 years old and I, and I thought, how am I going to best support my family? Am I going to be able to best support them as a civil, back as a civilian again on the outside or remaining in the military? For a lot of guys that ask me, pose that question to me or ask me that right now, like, what should I do? Should I get out? Should I stay in? I don't have the answer to that question, but I, but I usually will respond saying, how can you best support your family? And, and sometimes it's that simple, sometimes it's not. But I decided to get out in 2015, and my wife and I, we moved up to Seattle, Washington, you know, early on in our conversation where I failed out of state school in Denver, in between this time, earned my bachelor's and then moved up to Washington and went to grad school there and my MBA from the University of Washington. Fantastic school up there. And spent four years up there uh, back in the corporate world running a real estate property management franchise up there, specializing in residential and commercial property management. So we had a, we had a good life again. The transition phase, going back out, a lot of guys were like, are you scared getting out? You know, what are you going to do? And I remember back then thinking, you know, I'm not that scared to, to, to transition back out. I, I had spent the majority of my career in the corporate world already, all of my 20s. You know, three quarters of my professional career has been spent in the business world. One quarter of that career has been spent in the military. So I don't want to say it was easy by any means, but I thought it was going to be relatively simple transitioning back out. You know, I already, I already understood corporate environment, how the departments interacted with each other, the lingo, because it's a whole different vernacular back in the business world than what you learn in the military world with all the, all the acronyms and military jargon. So from that standpoint, the transition was relatively simple. What I severely underestimated was the standard of excellence that I was used to for these previous five years. Hey, there's no place for mediocrity <laughs> in special forces. Complacency is your enemy in special forces. Where getting back to the civilian life where I thought it was going to be relatively simple, here I was back into a world where mediocrity was okay. You know, I'm not trying to knock it, but hey, people wanted to just show up to work and it was kind of viewed as more of a transactional thing. Hey, I want to show up, earn my paycheck and go home. That's not necessarily a bad thing either, but for guys like us, that's not enough. Like every day I wake up, I try to be better than I was the day before. Some days I'm not. Some days are difficult. Some days you just kind of want to pull the covers over your head and stay in bed and shut the blinds. But for the most part, it's that internal intrinsic motivator you have within you that's just constantly wanting to be better than you were the day before. And so for me, that was, that was kind of the difficult part about getting out was missing the camaraderie of the brotherhood, missing that standard of excellence. And I'll be honest, I tried to pull, I pulled the Heisman on the military when I got out. I thought, hey, that chapter of my life is over. Time to move on. Time to start the family. Time to just get back into the civilian world. And I didn't deal with it the way I should have. I didn't deal with kind of emotional, from an emotional standpoint, how badly I would miss the brotherhood. So which kind of leads us up to now, honestly. So a little bit more of the story is Greenberry Foundation was looking for a, an executive director and you know you you threw your name in the in the hat 
And, you know, I was fortunate I got to, to interview you and, and a couple other really fantastic candidates. The community really came out to support the, the foundation just by, by wanting to continue to serve. And that's how everybody viewed it. And so, you know, you did a really great job in your interviews, which I was, I was a part of, just communicating the passion for, for desire to serve. Now, there was also the sacrifice side, which you get in the corporate world, it's easy to get back into uh, making more money, which you were. And then to transition, and I remember asking you very directly, I said, so you're going to take this big pay cut to come down and, and run a nonprofit. Is your, is your family on board? And you looked me right in the eye over, over, I think it was Skype at that time, but you're like 100%. Family's on board. We're, we're in this together. And, you know, this is, this is how I want to continue to serve. You're absolutely correct. And that's, that's the same answer I'd give you today. And the truth is, yeah, when I got out, I kind of fell back into that cycle I had in my 20s where I started chasing money again, thinking that's what's going to make me happy again. But now I had an opportunity to make even more money. And the same thing occurred. I should have learned my lesson from, you know, back in my 20s that this money wasn't making me happy. What is this void inside that isn't getting filled? You know, square peg, round hole. You know, when I was most happy, was those five years in the military serving something bigger than myself when I really had to do a self-assessment. And so when this position became available, my wife, Shelly, is the one that found it online. We're sitting on the couch. She found it. She said, look at this job description. I looked at it. I said, holy cow, culmination of 20 years of my life makes sense. And it was an opportunity to get one, one foot back in the regiment, but to be able to basically contribute the three quarters of the corporate world experience and, and being inside organizations and running companies where it was just this perfect blend. I don't think I've ever admitted this to you guys, but I almost pulled my application. I almost pulled myself out of the running. And I think it was because self-doubt, fear, people self-assess themselves very, very well, good, bad, or otherwise. And I started to self-assess myself thinking, Ah, I'm sure there's people applying with way more military experience than me, or I'm sure there's people applying with way more business experience than me. But I think when I really looked in the mirror, I went into it with, I don't have 20 years of military experience. I don't have 30 years of business experience, but I've got an exceptional blend of the two. I've got a great degree from a prestigious school. I know how to run an organization. I'm an extremely passionate individual, and there's nothing more I love than being able to serve my brothers and their families. So that's the mentality I went into it, where every conversation I had was this board of directors, they're, gonna, they're going to see who I am, no matter what. Because the same guy that they interview is the same guy that's going to show up to corporate HQ if he gets chosen. And if I wasn't, then I can at least have the foresight to know I could look myself in the mirror and be like, I gave them everything I got. And that was that was good enough for me. Yeah. So I've, I've thought a lot about this over the years where if you give something your best shot, that's really all you can do, right? If you let the world's decisions, so there's a decision in someone else's hand, if you give them too much power and say, I'm going to base my self-worth off of your decision, yes or no, you get the job, you don't. The girl says, yes, I'll go on a date. No, I won't. Take your pick, right? Whatever phase of life you're in. First off, you can always ask the girl out again, <laughs> but you, you also just have to have that confidence to say, look, I gave this my best shot. 
And, and that's something that, look, I mean, you're, you've done a lot in your life. You've overcome a lot and you're still going through that. And all of us go through that to some extent where you say, you know, you've got to call your brother from the payphone and say, you know, I don't know if I can put up with, I don't know if I can put up with this anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. You, you got to have some element of support out there. Sometimes you got to reach out for help. I'm sure Shelly was great during the, the application process, which I could absolutely just sense when I asked you that question. And, and so we love chatting with, with Green Berets and, and these kind of people who have this, you know, there's that ad, how does it go, Rich, something about it, it says more about you than you can ever say about yourself and, and all that stuff, you know, and then the older I get, the older, older we get, right, Rich? Right. The, uh, <laughs> you know, the, the more that stuff kind of, it, it makes sense, right? You know, I've, I've looked at it in a lot of different ways and it's, it's taken me a long time to do it, but eh, I kind of got there. And I believe that there are people, and we're talking right now, that are here to live a life of service as opposed to a life of self-serving. And I think that's what you identified with. I know it's what I identify with. Took me a long time to get there. Jason's much the same way, although he doesn't want to admit it. He's running his own damn (laughs) business. But he also believes in service. And those people, particularly those that have been in special forces and, and other parts of the military, service is the most important thing. Service to brothers, service to unit, service to nation, service to community. Right now that we're running into this whole thing with, with COVID-19, it's all about service to the community. But it's service nonetheless, service to others, humanity. That's what it's all about. And there are people that are just destined to do that, some better than others. That doesn't mean you can't be smart about some of the business aspects, but you're still there for service. I couldn't agree more with that. So let's talk about, let's transition and talk about the Green Beret Foundation, why it's so important and and what you do. We've been talking pretty candidly, you know, I'll save you all the canned responses, but you know, why this is so important Green Beret, since 9-11, we've been suffering 60% of the casualties of all special operators out there across all branches. You know, our quiet professional mentality that we have, that's ingrained in us, right? We're trained not to talk about what we do. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it kind of, it, it, it works to our detriment as well, because people don't know what we do. People don't know that we're on those front lines, that we're in multiple countries around the globe, that we are doing those things that you kind of read about or hear whispered about. And that's, that's why, one, this foundation is so important, because as a nonprofit, we are providing you know, the, the financial and non-financial resources to Green Berets and their families to make sure they have the necessary things readily available to them so that they can just continue doing what they have to do to be successful in what they're doing. So what kind of stuff do you see? What comes through your desk? What, what's the needs of the, the special forces community? It is a wide range of needs. You know, we've got several different programs. We won't have to dive into the weeds on each single one, but we've got guys with a, a, a big thing right now is mental health, guys with PTS and TBI. And I think it's becoming much more prevalent. Well, I would say it's always been there, 
I think it just appears it's becoming more prevalent now because it's being more socially acceptable to talk about. Agreed. Which is a fantastic thing. I agree completely. Yeah. I think it's always been an issue. It's just nobody's ever really been able to throw the dart right on the bullseye and say, let's talk about this. This is a serious issue, but it's okay to talk about. And I think for me, that's where, you know, my servant leadership mentality and, and the passionate side of me where, hey, if we want to talk about matters of the heart, man to man, let's have that conversation. What are you really going through? Do you need help? Let's talk about it. And a lot of times I think for guys, you know, we're kind of that A plus personalities, alpha male. And I think in large part, Green Beret, Special Forces guys, we're really multifaceted and we do have a lot more attributes to us and we want to talk about these things. We just never really have the environment to talk about them with our brothers, right? Because everything is so competitive and everything is you got to be tough. You got to do this. You got to do that. Don't break down. And I don't think it's about breaking down. I think it's about talking to each other about issues that are going on in order to make us stronger, more resilient. Talking about these things will actually make you stronger. That's, that's the kind of the point I like to convey when I talk to guys when they bring up stuff or have a need. But as far as TBI, PTS, mental health is a big one right now. Um, you know, guys going through a lot of other alternative therapies. You know, we do family support as well. People are just struggling to make ends meet. We teamed up with Mount Sinai in New York to do a cancer research study for guys that are being diagnosed with cancer and their family members at relatively young age. Through the roof numbers for veterans. Through the roof numbers. So these are real issues that I really want to take a proactive approach on. It's easy for any nonprofit, I think, to just kind of sit back and wait for the phone to ring. But I want to aggressively get out there and say, what's really going on in our community? What are guys suffering with? What are their families suffering with? Because I do understand the family dynamic. I understand the deployment cycles and, and the difficulties of, you know, the Green Beret being deployed six months on, six months off, or three months, three months, nine months. On the home front, um, there are struggles as well. And, and I don't know all the particulars about every single military branch. I'm not claiming to be a, a subject matter expert, but I think as a whole, Green Berets have a high operational tempo and they're dealing with extremely difficult and stressful situations and the missions that they do. And that trickles down back onto the home front. So there's a lot of facets that we need to take care of. Because it is the whole community, right? I mean, it's, it's the guys going to war and there's the families that are back home and there's reintegration every time you come back from a deployment. There's the networks that form uh, amongst the, the wives. Exactly. I mean, between wives, extended family members, kids. I mean, it's, it's a big, giant community like that. And, and so when something doesn't go right, and unfortunately, it, it's pretty easy for you to sit back and wait for the phone to ring because it will. And, and those, are not, those are not phone calls that you want to get, but that's the nature of what we do. We're out there and every, every bad country out there, Green Berets are there. Absolutely. Working with local forces, doing all sorts of different kinds of missions. In some countries, they don't really have diplomats, right? Or, the, you know, they have armies and armies are their diplomats. And, and you don't send diplomats in to go talk to their armies. You send Green Berets. So when you start seeing stuff in Mali and Niger and, and you know, Africa is really heating up and COVID's going on. So, of course, the wars are just irrelevant to America, you know, and, and I say that 
to some extent it makes sense, right? But you know, we still have Green Berets there. You know, I lost two two buddies that I went to war with a decade ago, lost them this past year in Afghanistan. I mean, these these are really going on and they have real impacts on real families that, you know, are are grateful to serve, but that entails sacrifice. An incredible amount of sacrifice. And I'll and I'll caveat that with it, it's not just active duty soldiers. You know, the foundation is set up to support active duty, separated, and retired Green Berets as well. So there's no statute of limitations on the support we provide. And another huge thing that I try to throw out there is, I don't know if there's a stigma or what, but there's no hierarchy as far as support when it comes to what we provide. Because for guys like Green Berets, we always believe that one of our brothers needs more help than we do. Because we always, in our minds, we know somebody that got injured, you know, or or is worse off than we are on our scale in our minds. And so one thing I come up against a lot is I know somebody needs support. They reached out to me and they're like, you know what? I got a brother that needs more support than I do. And what I'm trying to convey, it's like, there's no hierarchy of support. It's if you need help, everybody's trials and tribulations are different. If you need help, you got to be brave enough to ask for help. You know, we've got the ability to, you know, kind of customize the support that we provide. And so it's not necessarily cookie cutter, just in the box type stuff. It varies because everybody's life is different. All right. Talk to us about how, how you guys are doing, you know, COVID-19 has affected all of us. What's, what's going on at Green Bay Foundation now? Yeah. I mean, this is, this, this hit everybody like a ton of bricks, right? The uncertainty, everybody's adapting to it. You know, we have already been set up to be able to work remotely, efficiently. You know, when I came in, it was all about continuity, right? The Green Beret Foundation, it's about the mission. The harsh truth and the reality is we're a nonprofit. We're not in business to employ people. We have a mission to to achieve and nothing is greater than that mission. And so for us, it's about making sure that we're still able to operate as efficiently as possible, which we are. We've set up an emergency relief fund, which is dedicated solely, again, for Green Berets and their families as they're battling through this crisis. And so we're ready for it. It's just a matter of having people be brave enough to ask for help, you know, and everything is done confidentially. Uh, You know, we don't shout this stuff from the rooftops when people are are requesting for support. So So if you sort of take your your whole career, and, and here we are in 2020 in the middle of COVID, it's a crisis, you know, we sort of view it as a deployment mindset and, you know, you can apply a lot of what we've learned as, as Green Berets to, to any type of crisis. I mean, what's your, what's your advice as a leader to just people out there, including Green Berets? Jason, that's a great question, man. Um, I would say Green Beret, just as humans in general, it is easy for anybody to go down a rabbit hole on, on start thinking about worst case scenarios. As Green Berets, we're trained to always have a plan, a contingency plan for everything. But the reality is there's a lot of uncertainty right now that we just don't know. And if you just, if you focus so much on the unknown, you're, it's gonna drive you crazy. So uh, as an individual, as a Green Beret, as a leader, you just focus on the things you can control right now the facts you know, the information you know, and you make decisions based on that. 
and you make good decisions as they come at you. This is ever evolving. It's a moving target. And so I can make plans six, seven months down the road. And I kind of, we kind of already have, but with an understanding that one month from now, we may have to pivot and completely change those plans as well. So I would say in this instance where there's so much uncertainty going on, control the things around you that you can control and figure out how to have a mindset of just letting go of the things you can't control. That's, that's much easier said than done. Much easier said than done. But I think that's what will help people remain somewhat sane during this time and just incrementally take things as they come. And that's what will help shift people's perspectives. Good words of wisdom. Thank you, Brent. No problem. Brent, where can we, where can we find you? GreenBeretFoundation.org, GreenBeretFoundation.org. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. That's where you can find us. Thanks so much for coming on Glorious Professionals. We really appreciate your time. Thanks, guys. Love what you do. Thanks, Brent. All right, so Brent has left the building, the digital building. What what'd you think, Rich? I, I think Brent had some great looks at his early years and at himself as an individual and himself as a Green Beret. And he had some great comments for folks that, that they need to take to heart. Yeah, I mean, so I, I knew his story, his, his upbringing and his youth. And just I just really love how he presents it, too. I mean, he's, it's, it's a generational thing. I mean, Brent is an American, you know, his mom came from Colombia. I mean, it's the American dream. I mean, she worked her ass off to give her kids opportunities that Brent figured out a way to seize and nobody's path to success is a straight line, including Brent's. And you got a lot of people out there and you look at them on paper, you look at them on whatever profile, wherever, and you think, oh man they're just different than I am, right? Or they're just, they had this or they had that. And, and that's, to me, just a wrong mindset. It's, look, highlighting some of the things that he had to overcome. I mean, you know, failing out of school, self-doubt during the Q course, which is an easy thing to have. You know, self-course, self-doubt during the, the interview process at the Green Bray Foundation, which he was great, by the way. I mean, his interview... His passion was just infectious, and that's exactly what we we wanted and were looking for. And you know, there's just a lot of great people out there in our country with a, a hugely diverse background, and they're just putting forth the effort for all of us. I think that's the key that they're willing to put themselves out and and make the effort. That's what it's all about. And I really liked his his idea of that you do things not for success, you do things so that you don't fail. That really struck a chord with me. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's always another high ground or whatever, but you don't want to get, you don't want to fail on the way to the high ground. When it boils down to a team mentality, you're there for the guy on the right and the left. You don't want to fail them. It isn't that you want to get them anywhere. It isn't that you want to get yourself anywhere. It's that you don't want to fail the greater good. That's for the team and for the nation. So it was, it was an honor to have Brent on. We hope you all enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for listening.